Welcome to the World War I History Podcast, produced by the MacArthur Memorial. We invite you to follow us on Twitter at MacArthur1880 or find the General Douglas MacArthur Memorial on Facebook. This podcast was sponsored by the Ernst and Gertrude Tico Charitable Foundation. When World War I began in Europe, American journalists rushed to cover the war. The decades prior to 1914 had been filled with colonial conflicts, revolutions, and wars around the world. Many reporters assumed they would cover the new war in Europe as they had covered other conflicts. However, the scale, brutality, and duration of World War I forced these journalists to rewrite their traditional rules of reporting and to find creative ways to access information about the war to keep the American public informed. To discuss the stories of these reporters and their coverage of World War I, we are joined today by Chris Dubbs, a military historian and journalist and the author of American Journalists in the Great War. Welcome, sir. Glad to be here. Uh, Pleased to talk with you. So set the stage for us. What does the field of American journalism look like just prior to World War I? Uh, it was in transition, uh, slowly becoming more professional. The late 19th century gave us yellow journalism, which emphasized sensationalism over facts. The typical example of yellow journalism that shows up in textbooks is the how the Spanish-American War was handled. Newspaper publisher William Randolph Hearst uh, famously instructed his photographer, uh, you furnish the pictures and I'll furnish the war. Newspapers in New York were battling for circulation. They sensationalized events and molded public opinion to support the war with Spain. So it, it was partly in response to yellow journalism that in the turn of the 20th century, uh, journalism moved more to establish professional standards. First journalism schools were established. Uh, the first journalism professional societies were created. You also had the emergence of the wire services and the Associated Press and United Press, and they syndicated news to thousands of newspapers. The market for news was growing dramatically. First appearance of mass circulation national magazines. Uh, You had underseas cables finally spanned the entire globe. So these publishers were hungry for news. As American journalists raced to Europe to cover the war, what kind of access do they have to the leaders, to the armies, to the battlefields? Well, the short answer is they had no access to the most famous correspondents that arrived in London in mid-August 1914 were uh, Richard Harding Davis and Frederick Palmer. So between them, they had covered half a dozen wars, you know, the Spanish-American War and the Boer War and the Philippine Insurrection and the uh, assorted Balkan conflicts and the Mexican border war. Uh, It was a good time to be a war correspondent. They had a a lot of work. But in all those conflicts, they had traveled with the armies. They had been credentialed with the armies. Uh, Not so in World War I. Uh, In August 1914, none of the Allied armies, the British, the French, the Belgians, were accepting journalists. Reporters were forbidden from accessing the war zone. Caught there, they were arrested and possibly accused of spying. Richard Harding Davis was nearly shot by the German army in August 1914, uh, accused of spying. To be fair to these armies, we have to ask the question here, uh, what's an army supposed to do? If there's a civilian in the war zone taking notes, taking photographs, and trying to send out his uh, account of what's happening. But uh, there's an important but here. Reporters were not given access, but they took it nonetheless. They established 
themselves in the war zone. All the action the first month of the war on the Western Front was in Belgium as the German invasion swept through on the way to France. We tend to think of World War I as a, a static affair of stalled trench warfare, but in August 1914, it was a war of movement. So civilians could still travel from London to Brussels. Reporters congregated there and improvised. Richard Harding Davis uh, hired a car every day to take him out into the countryside looking for the war. Irvin Cobb of the Saturday Evening Post hired a, a Brussels taxi cab to do the same thing. So they would ride out into the countryside uh, looking for the war. They, they didn't find it, but they did see things. They saw troop movements and defensive preparations and the flow of wounded and fleeing refugees. Uh, so they didn't find the fighting, but they, they had a wartime adventure and they returned to their Brussels hotel room and cabled out their story. The United States is neutral in 1914, but some parts of the population favor the Allies and other parts of the population favor the Germans. So how do American reporters navigate this? Does it make their reporting more balanced or are they picking sides based on their readership? I think the figure in 1914 was about 9% of the U.S. population was of German heritage. And there were many German language newspapers that were sympathetic to the German cause. But the reality was that the Allies controlled the flow of news. So uh, consider this. Britain had cut Germany's transatlantic cable in the first days of the war. So Britain controlled and censored all cable traffic from Europe to America. The vast majority of U.S. journalists covered the war from Britain, France, or Belgium. So the news had an allied perspective. And finally, Britain had a rather robust propaganda bureau uh, that continually wrote about exaggerated, sometimes invented stories about German atrocities. So to answer your question, the press coverage was definitely skewed to the Allies from the beginning. But there were also several high-profile events in 1915 that smothered out almost all positive favorable coverage of Germany. Among these events were the execution of the British nurse Edith Cabell uh, by a German firing squad. She had been uh, helping to smuggle Allied soldiers out of occupied Belgium, and the Germans arrested her and executed her for this. And the biggest event probably was the sinking of the passenger liner Lusitania by a German U-boat. The whole U-boat war, while it was effective militarily, was a, a public relations disaster. So these things helped to turn public opinion in America against Germany. So you mentioned 1915 and some of the major events happening then. What kind of access do American reporters have to, say, then the Allied armies from 1915 to the period uh, right before the United States enters the war in April 1917? A very important shift in attitude occurred among the Allies in about January 1915. They decided that rather than trying to suppress the flow of news, which they had been doing since the start of the war, it would be better to manage the flow of the news. So in other words, they would begin to grant limited access to a select number of reporters. Uh, the French were first to embrace this and the British quickly followed suit. This is the way it worked. Uh, a reporter could apply to the war office to visit the front on a war tour. Uh, they would be escorted by an officer on a predetermined itinerary. They might visit a previous battlefield or tour a munitions factory or interview a general. The French in particular had some standard tours in this period, which show how they attempted to manage the news. <laughs> Let me just mention a couple of these. One was to the Marne battlefield. This was just about 30 miles from Paris, where the initial German invasion had been turned back. 
so they could take reporters out there and show off the carnage and the graves and the, the scene of an Allied victory. Uh, another was to this city of Reims uh, to see the 15th century cathedral that had been damaged by German artillery fire. So nearly every king of France for the last several hundred years had been crowned there. Joan of Arc had been there and now it was in ruins. So th this fit perfectly with the Allied narrative that the Germans were making war on the world's cultural heritage. And the last war tour I'll mention is uh, to the recaptured regions of Alsace. That previous French region had been in German hands since the uh, Franco-Prussian War, 1871, but parts of it had just been recaptured. So the French liked to take reporters out there and they could show them uh, German street signs being taken down or school children singing the French national anthem. So it was a feel-good victory kind of demonstration. So these are just some of the ways the French tried to manage the news. What kind of access to the armies of the central powers then did American reporters have during the same period? Actually, the Germans had come to the realization about managing the news before the Allies did. Reporters from neutral countries were welcomed in Germany, Austria, Turkey. They could write about the home front. They were taken on war tours, um, and that did result in some favorable coverage of Germany. But the Germans, right about this period, began to resent America, and it started to make uh, access a little more difficult. I know that a number of the journalists uh, mentioned a particular German press officer who kept, a, kept an empty artillery shell on his desk, and he would show it to every American reporter who came through. Uh, he, he'd say, this shell killed some of our soldiers. See here, it is stamped on the bottom, made in USA. So why does a neutral America sell munitions to our enemies? So that kind of attitude began to get a little stronger in Germany at this time and made it more difficult for reporters to get in there. Now, some of the reporters you cover are outright activists. At least one even advised foreign governments, banks and monarchs. And can you give us some examples of this? And at the time, were there any ethics concerns about this? Uh, well, the one you're referring to is uh, Chicago Daily News reporter Stanley Washburn, and he's a rather extraordinary case, uh, a unique case. When he went to England in August 1914, he was recruited by the London Times to be their correspondent and sent off to Russia. So he was an American journalist, but now working for a British newspaper. So reporters for the London Times were uh, a very special breed. It's, it's hard to call them just journalists. I mean, they were part journalists, part diplomat, military consultants, and part spy. And there was absolutely zero ethical concerns for them. It was just part of their job description. Whenever they could, in whatever way they could, they were to promote the British allied cause. So Washburn found himself literally managing the news out of Russia. I mean, he was advising generals and the czar. He, he would literally write press releases for the Russian Secretary of State. And he sat on the czar's military advisory council. And he's a American journalist working for a British newspaper. As for other activists, I mean, some reporters had a particular focus, I suppose, uh, that they a cause that they wanted to champion. Reporter John Reed comes to mind. He He was totally in sympathy with the uh, Bolshevik cause in the Russian Revolution, and that tended to skew his reporting. Inez Bouvazian uh, was such a pacifist in, in her slant on the news uh, reporting out of Italy that she was expelled from the country, went against the narrative of the war. And a number of women war correspondents, too, had a feminist slant to their reporting. 
they took pains to bring uh, to public attention the enormous role that women were playing in the war. I mean, some women reporters were literally sent to war to get the woman's angle on the war. Let's take a break. We'll be right back in a moment. My name is Koji. And I'm Michelle. And this is the Japanese America podcast. So this is where we look at all things Japanese American. We will bring alive the history, culture, and people that make up this diverse community. In this month's episode, we'll examine Koji's unique family history. To help bring this story alive, we brought on actor and comedian Derek Mew. He was reported to be extremely pro-Japanese and anti-American in sentiment. Her husband was taken into custody by the military authorities under a warrant authorized by the Secretary of War, who was his enemy of the United States. He was my grandfather on my dad's side. To hear more stories about Japanese America, you can listen to this podcast anywhere you normally download your podcast. So I just want to backtrack just for a minute because we were talking about Stanley Washburn. And in the book, you recount this very interesting episode where he is talking with Tsar Nicholas II. And he's talking to him about the value of public opinion and media. And the czar has a very interesting response. Uh, Can you elaborate a little bit on that? Well, the role of journalists in in Russia this time is fascinating. Some of the journalists who who meet leaders in the the Russian government, these leaders had never before met a journalist or even vague on the concept of what a journalist was. And uh, in particular, Stanley Washburn tried to convince the czar of the importance of public opinion. In other words, how you marshal support for a war or for your war policies. And the czar was baffled by the whole concept. What is public opinion? We don't have public opinion in Russia. We have the czar's opinion in Russia. So it was interesting how reporters had to work around this in the Russian Empire. So you also mentioned in the book that the British public gets a lot of its war news from American reporters. Why is that? Um, well, especially in the early years of the war, British censorship was enormously tight. I mean, British reporters were restricted from what they could report. I mean, nothing remotely revealing useful information to the enemy, of course, but nothing negative about the military, nothing that might harm civilian morale. And British reporters generally rode the line on these restrictions. Uh, not so American reporters. <laughs> they had a much freer hand, especially if they mailed their stories back home rather than sent them over the censored cable. And once a war story had appeared in the American press in, in a newspaper, British publishers felt free to republish it. I mean, the reasoning went that, hey, we've, uh, we're not disclosing any critical information for the enemy if it's already appeared in the United States in a newspaper. There are even instances of of British publishers who had war stories that they could not publish. So they fed them to an American newspaper to print, uh, therefore freeing them up to go ahead and run with it. So it it was basically a way of evading government censorship. Once America enters the war in 1917, how does access to the Allied and Central Powers change for American reporters? At at that point, there there is no longer access to the Central Powers, but did not significantly change access to the Allied military. All along, the Allied powers wanted favorable press in America, the, the largest neutral power, and, and that didn't change. Except, of course, in this period, focus began to shift to the American war effort. But this is probably a good point, though, to clarify a couple of things. One, Americans weren't doing any fighting in 1917. 
they were building an army and training it and getting it to France and building the vast infrastructure to support their war effort. So a lot of coverage focused on all that preparation. And, and the larger point is to clarify what war correspondents actually wrote about. I mean, in our mythic image, I think of a, a war correspondent uh, is reporting on the fighting, you know, the bullets whistling by and shells exploding and men charging out of the trenches. But there was very little of that kind of reporting, at least until uh, the last six months of the war when the AEF really entered the fight. But mainly reporters wrote about everything else that was happening in a belligerent country. World War I is often described as the first total war. In a total war, everything in a society is subservient to the war effort. And so everything is war news. The food supply, manufacturing, the role of women, politics, civilian morale. So those things were more frequently the topics and news stories than combat. General Pershing said, in this war, I consider a trained newspaper man worth a regiment of cavalry. If he is in a position to serve his country with the typewriter and does not, he is lacking in his duty. So what's the relationship like between the AEF and American journalists? Well, of course, the the guiding principle, again, as with all armies, was to manage the news to your advantage. Pershing wasn't particularly fond of journalists, but he knew the importance of public opinion. The AEF initially credentialed about 15 correspondents, uh, those from major urban newspapers and the wire services. Saturday Evening Post, which was the largest circulation magazine at the time, and credentialed reporters were required to conform to military censorship rules and avoid any criticism of the Allied forces. These reporters lived near near to AEF headquarters. They were given regular briefings about military activities. They could visit military facilities and camps. They even had a limited ability to travel around the war zone with a, an officer escort. Uh, later on, the AEF uh, added a new category called visiting correspondent. Uh, they were had more limited access. Uh, for instance, they might be assigned to a, a single division and only be authorized to write about that division. For example, a, a New York reporter might be assigned to report only on a division from New York. He might have gone through basic training with them and uh, sailed to Europe with them and followed them into combat. So he could write very knowledgeably for hometown papers about what the New York boys were doing. But I I must add that there were many, many war reporters who were not credentialed and still wrote about the war. African-American troops were largely ignored by most American media during the war. Is this due to a lack of interest or were reporters just perhaps not aware that there were African-American combat units? Or was the AEF deliberately keeping reporters from these units? And, you know, are they ever covered by journalists in the war? Bottom line is that the AEF was as guilty of racial prejudice as American society in general. Black troops in the U.S. Army were almost exclusively assigned to labor battalions uh, rather than combat. I can't recall a single example of a news story written about these labor battalions. There may be one out there, but I have never seen it. Or about the service of black soldiers in the AEF. They are sometimes mentioned in articles, but not featured. They were an afterthought, with one notable exception, the 369th Infantry Regiment, uh, what would later be called the Harlem Hellfighters. Although African-American soldiers were prevented from serving in combat with the AEF, 
the French army was only too happy to have them. Uh, so in April 1918, General Pershing loaned the 369th to the French army. And that unit distinguished itself there. In fact, a couple of them were the first U.S. soldiers to win the Croix de Guerre, the French Medal for Bravery. That occasion drew some press attention to these black fighters. Irvin Cobb, a writer for the Saturday Evening Post, which was the largest circulation magazine in the U.S., uh, wrote a feature article about these soldiers. His articles praised these fighters and, and brought them to the attention of the American public. So that article was widely reprinted in newspapers and, and especially in the African-American newspapers. You are also the author of another book about journalism in World War One, and that is entitled An Unladylike Profession. American Women War Correspondents in World War One. Now, we will probably try to cover that in an entirely under podcast episode, but do you want to tell us a little bit about these women that were American reporters during the war? Oh, boy, I don't know if I can give you a short answer to that question, so just <laughs> cut me off if I, if I ramble on. Uh, but for starters, they were not credentialed. Uh, well, actually, one of them was in the closing days of the war, I mean, literally three days before the armistice, uh, she ended up covering our incursion into the Russian Civil War in Siberia. But for the most part, uh, they were on their own and they had to improvise. Some of them were incredibly adventuresome and prolific. Uh, Edna, Eleanor, excuse me, Eleanor Franklin Egan of the Saturday Evening Post comes to mind. She traveled in nearly every belligerent country uh, around the world in search of stories. She was on a ship attacked by a U-boat, uh, risked her life to write about Turkey's Armenian genocide. Uh, she was the only reporter to cover the British campaign in Mesopotamia. So she was not credentialed, but she wrote for the largest circulation magazine in America, and that opened doors. Other women reporters found an effective way to get around not being credentialed by volunteering with charitable organizations. So groups like the American Red Cross, the Salvation Army, the YMCA were very active in the war zone supporting U.S. troops. Uh, women reporters would volunteer with them and work in the hospitals and with entertainment units and delivering hot food to men in the trenches, uh, driving ambulances. And, and this brought them into close personal contact with the soldiers and resulted in some wonderful stories that the credential reporters never got a handle on. But if, if I had to pick one difference that really sticks out for me between the male and female correspondents, uh, it would be how they covered women. No surprise there, I guess. But Many female reporters initially were sent to Europe to get the woman's angle on the war. The male reporters would cover the fighting, uh, you go forth and cover the home front, uh, write human interest stories about women and families and how people endured. So coverage early in the war often portrayed women as victims, the loss of husbands and sons, uh, the burden of providing for the family, uh, women and children as refugees. So many stories at this point mention how many women were dressed in the black of mourning. But very quickly, these female reporters began to shift the narrative on this. Women were portrayed less as victims of the war and more as strong, active participants in the war effort. Uh, they were playing a huge role in the war. And in the process, they were literally redefining their role in society. This is what interested me so much in writing the book. Women were moving into every sort of occupation on the home front. For the first time, some universities allowed women into their programs in the sciences and engineering. 
trade unions, professional societies took their first female members. Uh, they worked in the war zone as nurses and doctors and ambulance drivers and with charitable organizations. In Russia, they served in combat. So these were all great stories. Uh, I like the way one female reporter summed it up. Nothing that anyone ever said about women before August 1914 goes today. Everything they said she wasn't and she couldn't and she didn't. She now is and she can and she does. Uh, so not to shortchange any of the other great reporting that women did in the war, and there was a lot, but for me, this is the, the biggest single story. Interesting. Any final thoughts on American journalists and the Great War? I, I often get the question, though, why do I write so often about where will one journalist? <laughs> What's the importance of the topic or the relevance to 2021? I, I guess because I think that what happened with the war news in World War I is foundational to everything that followed. World War I was literally a, a four-year experiment in how to report war news and, and how to control it. Those strategies and, and practices were largely duplicated in World War II and other wars since. But um, having said that, the reporting of World War I was also a product of its times. Uh, the technology, the state of the journalism profession, the news industry, and all that is changing by the hour. I mean, maybe in future conflicts, the important role will be played by uh, internet bloggers or anonymous citizens with cell phone video. Uh, well, they already are playing that role, instantaneously reaching tens of millions of people around the world. But for me, the, the common denominator 100 years ago and now are the courageous individuals who put themselves at risk to report the facts, the professional journalists, the citizen journalists. And those are the people I'll continue to write about. Well, thank you very much for joining us today. Glad to be with you. Thank you for listening. If you have questions, suggestions, or comments, we want to hear from you. You can find us on Twitter at MacArthur1880, on Facebook as the General Douglas MacArthur Memorial, or you can email MacArthurMemorial at Norfolk.gov.